0: Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 7, The Prophets, the P-H, Prophets. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can easily find Episode 1 of Season 1 at 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. Otherwise, brace yourself. For a conversation with God's voice telling His side of your story. If you've forgotten the climactic statements we made through Amos at the end of last week's episode, I suggest you go back and listen to them again before proceeding. And feel free to read the rest of Amos. Working in concert with us. He's like a skilled soloist improvising variations on an established theme, albeit not a happy one. He has oxen plowing the sea to underline the incongruity of Israel's ways, indicting them for thinking their victories are by their own strength. Amos six eleven 11-13 Amos talks us out of sending plagues of locusts and fire on Israel, relenting from these more spectacular measures in favor of the simple image of a plumb line, a symbol of a fair and right standard of measurement. By their own flaunting of that fair measurement will Israel's high places be made desolate and the house of Jeroboam ended with the sword. Amos 7. And speaking of ends... We even come up with a basket of summer fruit toward the end, because the single Hebrew word that conveys the image of summer fruit sounds an awful lot like the Hebrew word for end. And lest they somehow missed it, near the end of his message, Amos summarizes our charges. Israel has trampled the needy, ruined the poor, and overcharged them at the market selling them sweepings instead of real food, exchanging the lives of the poor for cash and merchandise. If these things are so, and they are, then I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this? Amos 8, 7 and 8 a more stern lecture could not be given to these adolescents, nor a clearer warning of dire and imminent permanent consequence unless change is made. Sadly, their reaction is embedded in Amos' narrative, where their chief priest at Israel's primary worship site in Bethel tells Amos to be quiet and go home. Amos 7.10 Don't make the same mistake. Listen to our reproof when we send it your way. You may be sensing one now through Amos. Are you a part of the problem today? Are you so privileged like Israel that you don't even realize there is a problem, much less that you are part of it? Do a life check with some questions you don't ever ask yourself about your attitudes and actions. Discuss them with someone you trust who is on the way. If you're in business of any kind, check the ethics of what you're doing and the impact it has on everything from individuals to neighborhoods, society, and planet Earth itself. And here again the call to not trust in your neighbor's gods just because they seem to be more successful than you right now. We will not tire of reminding you of that bit, because you don't tire of being tempted to place your trust in something that is not me. Now, if you've kept up with us in the manual, you know that Amos' lecture manuscript is nowhere near Kings or Chronicles in its bound location. This is more an organizational matter than theological, or even chronological. You see, We've been tracking with the historical narrative of Tom from the very beginning, from Genesis through to the current tandem coverage of Kings and Chronicles. However, we are going to reach the end of that narrative line in a little bit here, and when we do, there's still a good chunk of the owner's manual left. This is true whether you're reading the Tanakh or the First Testament. Just find the book of Nehemiah just the other side of Chronicles, and put your finger in its last page. Then see how much manual is left. First Testament-wise, that is. Tanakhers know we're about a third through the Nevi'im, with the lion's share of Ketuvim yet untouched, except the Chronicler's take on things. Amos is our first considered departure herein from Tom's first section, our historical narrative sequence, which clearly lasts a very long amount of time all by itself. The prophets of whom Amos is our prototype have their lectures preserved as separate books, but all those lectures are given by each speaker at a point during the historical narrative we are following during the reign of one or more of the kings catalogued in Kings and Chronicles. Those recorded prophet lectures are lumped together as the last third of the First Testament when subdivided within themselves by the size of the scrolls upon which they are written, with the heavy ones on first and the lighter, shorter lectures to finish. Those two subgroups are sensibly labeled greater and lesser, measured by scroll size and weight, not by their message's importance. Within those categories, they're in an order well in the neighborhood of chronology, but not quite at its precise address. The sequence in which the prophets' lectures are printed doesn't matter. Their message does, that they are preserved and heard again by you and others who need to hear them. As we move through the final years of this phase of the Abra plan, we'll be noticing each prophet briefly, though mostly not in the detail we've unpacked Amos. Good heavens, we'd be here for a year otherwise. Speaking of our historical narrative, let us return there for a moment. You'll recall that Amos delivers his colorful, scathing lecture to the northern kingdom during the reign of Jeroboam II. You may also recall that the writer of Kings gives J2 very little page space in accounting his reign, highlighting the now familiar refrain that he did the same evil as his predecessors. Kings does throw in a couple of tidbits regarding some restoration of the northern borders and the taking back of some middle ground from Judah, but then the king's writer confesses he's left something, perhaps a good bit, out of his account. As for the other events of Jeroboam's reign, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Lucky for you, that other book has been lost, so we won't be processing that with you too. Some of the rest of those acts include an alliance with Assyria. Yes, you heard me right. If you'll permit a quick flashback, this alliance was quietly set up back in 2 Kings 10.32, when we allow Hazael, king of the Arameans, keeping straight that Aram, in which the Arameans live, is Syria, Tom switches back and forth in its references, too. We allow Hazael to trim off some of the land at his border with Israel. Well, instead of applying to us for assistance at the time, Israel, actually Yehu, three kings before Jeroboam II, thinking militarily instead of on the whalely, turns to the Arameans' strongest enemy, Assyria. Up to this point, Assyria just distracted Hazael and drawn his attention away from his western neighbors. Now, however, Israel makes a formal alliance with the bigger kid on the block so the bully next door will quit his sniping. Though there will be no secret about this by the time our next prophet takes Israel to task for such an allegiance which is why we waited until now to mention it. Your archaeologists found a record of this association on an Assyrian artifact. The black obelisk of Shalmaneser III shows general-turned-king Yehu giving tribute to the Assyrian king, kissing, in fact, the ground before him. The next time you're in the neighborhood of Great Russell Street in London, pop by the British Museum and see it for yourself. It's smack dab in the middle of room six, right there on the ground floor. This whole sequence would turn out much differently if there were an artifact showing Yehu, or any northern king, for that matter, bowing down in such reverence and surrender to me instead. And it's during the same small sequence in Kings that our next prophet begins his mission to the northern kingdom. He preaches his lecture a bit later and a bit longer than Amos. Though both Hosea and Amos are aimed at Israel during J2's reign up there, Amos's career is limited to the span of a single southern king, Uzziah, while Hosea is preaching his colorful northern message during the reign not only of Uzziah, but also during the careers of the three kings of Judah that follow. And speaking of Judah... Hosea is the only one of the sixteen written prophets not said to hail from the southern kingdom, regardless of which kingdom they're preaching at. Hosea's lecture could not be more different from Amos's in both style and content. Amos attacks Israel largely for her unjust, oppressive, interpersonal ethic one with another. Hosea lays into Israel for its military alliances and worship of neighbor gods all lumped into Baal, both of which replace me and my role in the nation's life. Amos, though exceptionally colorful from the word go, is a standard lecture format throughout, whereas Hosea includes a good swath of parabolic biography. It is this feature that carves for Hosea a very special place in my heart. I ask more of him than of perhaps any other prophet, though none of them have anything near a job for which folks would line up with applications in hand. Hosea, though, is different, because I want him to know more than just the message I am hoping Israel will hear and respond to through him. I want Hosea to know the deep, true love in my heart for them, so he can tell it aright. And so he must also know how that heart has been broken time and again by Israel's adulterous betrayal. And so, at my request, Hosea takes as wife a promiscuous woman known to have sex with any man who wishes to. Stating the obvious, Hosea's story begins in Hosea 1, if you'd like to follow along. She has a name with an unfortunate and rather incongruent association in your habitat for those of you who are aging faster than you realize, for though she is neither from the south nor in the Marine Corps, nor obviously a man, Hosea's new wife is named Gomer. If that means nothing to you, keep listening. If you know exactly of whom we speak, treat yourself to a quiet shazam wherever you happen to be right now. Just don't startle anyone. In quick succession, the newlyweds have three children, two sons and a daughter, with the girl in the middle. As children of a prophet, each bears a name that is a harbinger of judgment. The eldest's name, Jezreel, warns that the massacre committed there by Yehu will bring consequences. His sister, Loruhama, conveys the end of mercy for Israel, and kid brother Loammi notifies Israel they are not my people any longer. You can bet they introduce themselves with their nicknames instead on the first day of school and for the rest of their lives. Hosea's lecture is all the more arresting because Hosea is living within so powerful a metaphor. Immediately inherent in Hosea's situation are the mixed feelings caused by his relationship with Gomer. When she proves unfaithful to him after their marriage, Hosea's real love for her is actually the cause of his anger at her infidelities. If he did not love her, he would not be angry. This should give you a bit of insight into the tragic in our entire story with Israel and with you. It is precisely because we love Israel so much that we are angered at her turning away from us in order to be with others. And then for Israel to think Baal is the one providing rain, fertility, crops, and all that go with them, It's heartbreaking and infuriating at the same time. And so we'll let that serve as an introduction to Hosea and the themes that we address through him because there's so much more to his story. We will wait and process that together next time on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support what we do, Give us a review on iTunes or Facebook, then share this podcast with your friends. There's a link to the very first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, Be good to yourself.